welcome back. Uh, welcome to my new listeners this week. It's great that you have found this podcast and you've decided to join us. And welcome to, to my regular listeners. I'm taking a slightly different approach today. Oh, by the way, I should just say, um, you're on a dog walk and it's slightly blowy, but I have got a mic today, so I'm hoping that will cut out the noise. Um, those of you who are new to this don't know that I often uh, record when I'm out with the dog because I love being outside in nature. Um, I love being out with the dog. It's my most creative, most uh, relaxed time. So uh, I enjoy this. You join me. So if you hear the wind or the bird song, it's authentic. I don't edit my posts. I speak from the heart. This is who I am. And you get me raw, as it were. <clears throat> and today I am taking quite a different approach. Today I'm actually going to talk about um, my own anxiety. Um, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on overcoming anxiety at all um, because it is not a specialism of my own, but it is something that I have suffered from quite badly. Um, so I thought I would, oh by the way, I've also got a bad throat. <laughs> um, so throw that all into the mix and this is going to be an interesting one today. Um, so anxiety, it's a biggie, isn't it? And it's horrible and I know that because I have suffered. Um, and suffered is absolutely the right word. Um, mine, I think, comes from, it's almost based in post-traumatic stress, I think, PTSD, as people call it. Um, uh, I wasn't an anxious person. I had never suffered from anxiety. I'm quite confident as a person, um, quite happy in my own skin, uh, happy with my career and my, my life generally. But I think what caused my anxiety was because of some experiences that I'd gone through um, on reflection. I didn't see that at the time, but on reflection, um, now that I've worked through it predominantly and believe I've got a control over it, <clears throat> I think when I reflect back, that's what caused it. Um, in 2010, end of 2010, going into 2011, um, I was very suddenly taken very suddenly seriously ill um, with no warning, with a very rare blood condition. For those of you who listen, um, who know about this, it's called TTP uh, or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. A very rare blood disorder, very dangerous blood disorder, um, can be very, very dangerous. Um, I'd never heard of it. Um, many doctors haven't even heard of it, or nurses. Um, so I was taken seriously ill and ended up in my local hospital and um, then transferred to a London specialist hospital where I spent the next, goodness knows how many weeks, fighting for my life. They didn't expect me to survive. My husband was told to prepare himself for the worst. Um, I quickly ended up in intensive care because I got lots more complications on top um, of the blood disorder. As part of the blood disorder, I got lots of complications, ended up in intensive care. I was on a machine three times a day for hours on end, having my blood and platelets taken, uh, spun, cleaned, um, 
put back uh, additional donations put back etc etc um, they worked phenomenally hard um, very very specialist they're the lead in Europe I think UCLH um, under the best consultant luckily for me um, she she uh, is the lead in the field in Europe and uh, they did a phenomenal job and luckily 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 I pulled through uh, against all odds really um, and I'm eternally grateful to UCLH for that and their expertise. <clears throat> um, and I came out of that experience, you know, feeling like I'd won the lottery. I knew I was extremely lucky. I knew I was so grateful to all of them. Um, I was grateful to my own health because I'd been fit and healthy beforehand. And I think that massively helped my recovery. <clears throat> and my ability to fight it. Um, they did a great job. I loved my friends and family so much. They were a tower of strength, looked after me, cared for me, uh, you know, cried for me, worried for me, etc. And, you know, I came out feeling I have got a second chance. Life is wonderful. Life is short and fragile and unpredictable and so on. And for a while afterwards, that was the overriding feeling. Um, but of course, then also doubts and fears start cropping up um, because anybody that has had TTP uh, will know that it, it hangs over you for the rest of your life. You never, they monitor you for the rest of or UCLH are um, monitoring for me for the rest of my life for. Um, any signs of potential relapse um, because relapse can be a lot worse still um, and they want to find out if there's any signs of it so that they can do um, work beforehand to ha hopefully prevent it um, and I'm in a research project to find out why and understand more about this very as yet not very understood illness so um, so it's relevant and it's still prevalent um, and it's still at times in my life I try not to think about it I try not to talk about it um, because we're years on I try to move on from it and uh, my, my belief my philosophy is I don't want it to define me I am much much more than TTP much much more um, and you know Philosophically, I tell myself something's going to get us all in the end and it probably isn't going to be that and I may still live to a ripe old age. So on and so on and so on. So, on. so that's how I came out of it. But it does hang over you at times. And um, one of the things that I found, and I suspect this is true of many illnesses, I suspect this is true. And, and in fact, talking to friends since or friends of friends of cancer sufferers, for example, um, they fight, they go through the treatment, so some of the people that I've spoken to, some clients, and they're given the all clear, or they're monitored or whatever, but it hangs over them. And one of the shared feelings that people say they have is that they almost can't ever just be normally ill, like my throat infection. Now, for the first few years, every time I got anything, an upset stomach, um, just a tummy bug, you know, or felt a bit fluey, um, or an ache or a pain, every time I got something, I automatically began to think, is it back, is it back? Um, and so the fear started to creep in. 
um, and you do relive it and it haunts you a little bit but I kept a check on that I think as best I could um, then my son uh, was diagnosed with um, what we thought were nasal polyps little, little um, nasal polyps fairly uh, you know fairly common and, and fairly easily um, operated on I think he was due to uh, in Basingstoke Hospital just to have almost day surgery maybe overnight nothing major and uh, he'd been suffering very nasally couldn't breathe well couldn't smell anything couldn't taste anything couldn't play hockey at the level he had his fitness was being affected because he was constantly bunged up was getting headaches um, because of it um, couldn't see the whiteboard at the school sometimes because his vision would go all blurry and white bright lights in his vision and so on and so we went in he and I for what he we had been told was going to be just fairly routine to have the polyps removed anyhow uh, within 15 minutes or 20 minutes of him going into theatre the the surgeon came out dressed in his normal clothes not in his um, greens and uh, told me that it, it, it wasn't polyps it was something else uh, far more specialized that he wasn't qualified to tackle that he would have to be referred to Great Ormond Street uh, for uh, w what he called a nasal pharyngeal uh, benign luckily he said it was not going to be cancerous um, but it was a tumor I can't remember now. It's shortened to JNA, so juvenile nasal pharyngeal uh, benign something or other. Long, 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 long way. Uh, so we, this of course, as a parent, is very distressing. We went to Great Ormond Street and um, met his consultant, who is a lovely, lovely guy and father of four boys. So he knew what we were going through as parents. But uh, my son was going to have to have two surgeries. Uh, in the space of a week and the they were both going to be major both for hours long uh, both with huge risks because it's right by the optic nerve the tumor had basically grown everywhere in every nook and cranny that it could in the nasal area uh, all around the optic nerve and t back towards the brain um, so it was a very risky scary procedure for a parent um, and I had to go with my son and go through all the trauma of kissing them goodbye in the in anaesthetic room, sitting, waiting for hours to be called and told to find out if any of the potential risks that they had mentioned, uh, ranging from stroke through to uh, all sorts of things, losing his eyesight, um, etc whether anything of that he also could bleed to death he had to have uh, the, the blood circulation had to they had to try and cut that off to the tumor because it's very profuse he had to have blood transfusions in theater when I saw him in recovery he was vomiting up blood because so much had gone down into his stomach and it can't be digested so he's vomiting up blood which is a horrible sight in recovery when you're not prepared for that um, so he basically had to have under his upper lip and into his nose, inside his nose, um, sort of cut open and his face folded back so that there was no scarring, which was nice for a teenage boy, but horrendous operation. There's no way in this earth I would want to go through that procedure. 
Um, so he came out looking battered and bruised, like he'd been in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson, really. Um, was very brave, but as a parent, it's horrendous to watch because you just want to make everything right for your child. Um, so he went through that um, scary, frightening, traumatic ordeal only for seven or eight months later to realise that he was symptomatic again um, and only then to go through it all again. He had to have both procedures again uh, 14 months later, I think. Um, so he was older and it's worse the second time because he knew what to expect and he was petrified, I was petrified. Um, and the fine, the fourth one, the big one, um, when I saw him in recovery because he was vomiting up blood again and he'd lost a lot of fluid, the anaesthetist, as he handed him over, wrote up for a bag of uh, fluid because he was dehydrated. But because he was being transferred, they didn't do it in recovery there because they were about to transfer him <coughs> to his bed, to his room in Great Ormond Street and the porters were waiting for him so the bag didn't go up and when we arrived up in his room um, they had the porters or the nurses the uh, theatre nurses hand over and mentioned the bag of fluid um, so they start doing his obs post-op obs and the bag still didn't go up um, and then they were changing shifts because it was evening now <clears throat> he'd had it all through the afternoon it was now evening and the shifts were changing so they went into their meeting and changed shifts and the bag still hasn't gone up and uh, he came he was very very lethargic this time I was getting more and more worried because previously he was at least chatting uh, at this stage this one he wasn't but he did open his eyes and say the bed's too small because we're in a children's hospital he's a tall teenager the bed's too small can you make it longer um, and some of the beds you can unscrew at the bottom and pull out uh, and uh, I was trying to do that couldn't it was too tight so I caught as one of the nurses big um, senior nurse went past I asked her um, and another one came in to help so there, there were two nurses there at which point she then noticed his obs on all the machines and uh, there was a quiet, steady, calm panic. <laughs> uh, everything dropped. His blood pressure dropped down to 60. Uh, suddenly the alarms on the machines were going and he, he went like plasticine, like light grey plasticine. Uh, he went a light grey colour, shiny, uh, with a sheen all over him. It, he just looked. It was terrifying. It was the worst 45 minutes of my life. He wasn't responding. His bed was now surrounded by senior nurses um, they, they, and they go very calm. I, I realised when observing that the worse the situation, the calmer they become. Um, and they all have their unspoken roles. So one I noticed was in charge of watching the iPad. They have an iPad with all the, record all the data on his data. She had that. One was stood just watching all the monitors and reading out all the reports. Um, one was in charge of all the cannulas, trying to push w fluid into him. One was squeezing the bag. Another had gone off to get a bolus. <clears throat> uh, another one was unwrapping the oxygen mask, ready to, was it oxygen or suction? They were unwrapping something, I can't remember. Um, another, unbeknown to me, had gone and was on the phone from at the front desk 
to intensive care preparing him for a bed. Another one was on the phone to the ENT consultants. Uh, another had bleeped the anaesthetist on call, uh, anaesthetic person who arrived. Um, it was terrifying as a parent because you, there's nothing you can do and you're just silently watching and praying that he, come on Josh, respond, respond, respond. At that point we didn't know if he was internally bleeding or whether it was just a very poor dehydration. Um, thank the Lord when they had pushed through very rapidly, as rapidly as they were physically allowed or medically allowed, uh, a, a bag of saline, he started to respond and his blood pressure started to improve. And within about 45 minutes, they turned to me, for the first time and said should we get you out mum and I said no 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 I'm staying here should we make you a nice cup of tea yes please and then she talked me through everything that had happened but up until that point they had really just had to focus on Josh of course understandably but it was horrendous and very traumatic um, so uh, that, that I think on top of my own trauma <clears throat> and losing my parents in between those two things, uh, being by my mum's bedside as she passed away and holding her hand um, in a horrible passing, a horribly noisy passing, although the nurses assured me she wasn't aware, she was unconscious, she didn't know, but the noises of her breathing will haunt me forever. Um, and uh, in between there was also a friend up the road who collapsed and we were called up there because they didn't have a landline. And uh, he also, uh, very suddenly, at a very young age, um, died in the ambulance, well, just as he arrived at the hospital. So he died about 15 minutes after he was moved from us. Um, so I think, for me, it was a combination of so many uh, frightening experiences with health, um, or injury or with doctors, nurses or paramedics involved. It was, <clears throat> it just built layer upon layer um, to the point where my anxiety became a real issue. And I think looking back, it was post-traumatic stress from all, a combination of all of those things. And so it manifests itself. My, I don't know if you suffer from anxiety, what your root perhaps to it all is or what the fears are all the anxious thoughts because I do believe they're fed by anxious thoughts um, I think our mindset is very involved with the physical reactions that we get so my mindset I would uh, for me it was particularly bad at night I grew to hate nights I grew to hate bed uh, the bedroom, the bed, uh, going to bed. I used to dread night times. I was fine in the daytime, most of it. But at night when the house and the family were all asleep and it's quiet, um, I would be awake and I would think my heart was racing. I would think, am I having a heart attack? Um, or I can't breathe. What's wrong with my breathing? Have I got clots on my lungs again? Um, and the minute you start thinking your heart's racing, your heart starts racing because you're frightened. Uh, it's bizarre. Or the minute you start thinking you can't breathe, the more you can't breathe because the anxiety 
uh, affects your breathing and so it's a vicious cycle the minute the thoughts kick in and I, at times I didn't know what was first was it was it the physical my heart was racing therefore my thoughts would kick in and underpin it and feed it um, or was it um, you know what came first it was chicken and egg but they definitely worked together they were definitely both involved um, so uh, or I would think I couldn't swallow, can't swallow, I can't swallow, oh God. And, and then the more you think you can't swallow, the more you can't swallow. But for me, it was all about health. Am I dying? Am I going to die? What if I die tonight? What if I've got, it? what if it's all back? And I do confess there were a few unnecessary trips to the GP. And once, <laughs> oh, once one Friday night, it got so bad that I was convinced everything was wrong. I, I thought... I thought my right eye had drooped and therefore my right side of my face had drooped and that my right arm was numb and my leg was numb. So I took myself to A&E hospital thinking I'd had a mini stroke. That was also one of the things I had through the TTP, uh, two of them. Uh, <clears throat> so I went there. Um, also in between actually, I'd had pancreatitis, genuinely had pancreatitis. Um, three years ago, this was two, three years ago, and I had ignored the symptoms of that, bizarrely. Um, I had been getting this pain I thought was just severe indigestion, and that I'd obviously run too far because I love running, and then got too hungry and scuffed my breakfast too quick and got indigestion. So I was ignoring the regular pains I was getting until one day the pain didn't go away and it got worse and worse, and vomiting and diarrhea. And I did genuinely end up in A&E that evening, and I was admitted for three or four nights with pancreatitis and had to go back a few months later and have my gallbladder removed which they believe was associated to the deranged liver that I'd had a few years earlier with the TTP. Um, <clears throat> so at times I stupidly ignored still symptoms as I had with the TTP um, and that's why I got to such a bad stage when I was eventually admitted and why I was so severe. Um, so classically I ignore some symptoms and so after the pancreatitis I didn't ignore anything and was taking myself regularly to the GP can you check this I think this or and that time on the uh, the A&E visit um, so my pendulum had swung I guess and coupled with all of the traumas with my son and other people and life experiences but I, I would tell my husband and he would, he's very much, he's very black and white and would say, you just got to stop thinking about it. You're not, there's nothing wrong with you. You haven't got a heart attack. Calm down. And for a few, a few occasions, that was quite good and quite calming. Actually, I needed a rational pull yourself together kind of approach. I also think that the menopause has something to do with this. I think um, the not sleeping at night is very very hormonally based so i wasn't sleeping i i believe because of the menopause and the minute you're not sleeping and the house is quiet and it's 1 a.m and you're led there wide awake for hours and hours my mind would take me to very dark places um and that i think in reflection would then create the very physical reactions with the heart the racing and me just reading into anything and everything um, but it wasn't just about me dying, actually. It then evolved. It evolved to, uh, is Josh all right? Is my son all right? And then um, if, you know, if 
it became, if anybody was late, if my husband was late home from work, has he had a crash? Or um, if I could hear someone coughing at night in the house, I would think, are they all right? And I would, I had, I found myself getting up at times of checking on them. Um, so if I was having a particularly bad spell with the, the not sleeping, and Neil had stayed up to watch match of the day or something, he would often, because of fear of disturbing me if I was asleep, if I had actually gone to sleep, he would go off into the spare room to give me a better night's sleep. But I would invariably wake at about one-ish, find him not there because I could hear him coughing or something. And then I would tell myself, what if he's had a heart attack? And I have been known to get up and stand outside the room and just listen for him to breathing. Um, to make sure he's all right. So uh, the fears and the anxiety w weren't just about me at all um, getting ill. Uh, they spread to anybody or any family member, even the dog. <laughs> um, because I knew how fragile everything was and how unpredictable. And I justified it in a sense to myself that um, because I'd been face up to it too many times, that I knew it could happen. But that's a horrible place to live uh, in because you, you can't live every day expecting someone to get injured, ill, um, you know, for there to be a life-death situation, etc. Your adrenaline and my physiology couldn't handle that. Um, and I think for me, so I do very much believe the menopause was not helping. I think the menopause causes anxiety can cause anxiety and I think certainly did with me. It certainly caused me insomnia, um, which did not help because the more awake I was, the more I grew to hate being in bed. Night times, dark, quiet, my thoughts, the dark places that my thoughts took me, it, it was horrible. Um, so the turning point for me, I think, um, how can this help you? What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that A, you are not alone. If this is something, if you experience anxiety, you are not alone. I, at the time, thought I was. Um, I felt very alone. I, I appreciated Neil's black and white, no nonsense, uh, pull yourself together approach. And at times it was very helpful. At other times it wasn't. Now, um, my turning point was A, admitting that it wasn't my health that was the problem. It was my mind. I needed to strengthen my mind. I needed to work on this. I needed to get cross with myself. Um, I needed to say firmer words, be in control. And so I started to, first of all, I went for the distraction technique. I, every time it would start, I would think, I'm not giving in to this. I'm not letting this happen. And so, I would go in the other room if, or Neil would be in the spare room or whatever and I would go and put the TV on or read my book. I wouldn't let my mind win and call, I wouldn't entertain it um, and allow it to take over. I would stop. I would almost say the word stop, 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 not going there. I would either do breathing exercises and one of the ones that really helps me, um, I would breathe in through my nose for four seconds hold for a good eight seconds plus longer if i could um 16 seconds i would at haven for if i could um and then release 
over eight seconds. And I would do that four or five times, laying flat on my back in bed. Prior to that, I would often do tensing all my muscles, all the way up from feet, all the way up legs, stomach, arms, shoulders, facial, forehead, all of my face muscles. Tense them all, relax. Tense them all, relax. Tense them all, relax. Then do those breathing exercises. And that could really, really calm me down. I would then try and make my mind go elsewhere, somewhere much, much nicer. Think about, I don't know, a forthcoming holiday or the Christmas shopping list or um, plans for the next few days or some marketing ideas. I would try and take my mind elsewhere to somewhere better, more interesting. Uh, another thing I used to do actually was because my mum had died, I used to talk to her in her, my head. She would be the one I would say, thank you too. So um, for me that worked. I would often just quietly talk to her and say thank you for little things. It could be anything through that day. I would relive the, go through the day and be grateful for each little thing. Thank you for it not raining when I uh, was walking through the car park and I had forgotten my umbrella and then it poured with rain as I arrived and so I missed that. Thank you for that. Thank you for um, the neighbour coming in and having a cup of tea. It was lovely to catch up. You know, the tiny, tiny things, anything and everything to be grateful for. So it puts you in a much better frame of mind if you go down the grateful path. And for me, it was reassuring to do it with my mum because it was quietly comforting, like a little warm blanket. So I would have that conversation in my head with her. Um, maybe start planning things in the future with her. You know, I'm planning to write so-and-so and so-and-so for work or launch this and help, help. Or if I'm doing a presentation, I would often say to her, please let it go well. Hope you come along with me, etc. Now, some people listening to this might think I'm insane and you're perfectly allowed to think that. For me, it was really reassuring um, and very helpful. And very. It, it took me away from the dark places that my mum took me to, horrible places about me dying, the children dying or whatever. Um, so those were techniques that helped me in the night time. I also did go to the GP and the consultant in London and ask about, for me, I made a decision about HRT and I went on HRT patches to stop the hot sweats at night and the insomnia and the anxiety. And for me, and I'm not telling anybody to do this at all, everybody is different and they consult with their doctor. Um, but I did find that, that was a huge help with the insomnia and therefore then I wasn't thinking quite so much. Uh, so that was helpful. But I think the big turning point actually was my brother-in-law was working at our house. We were having some building work done and he was the builder over a few good few weeks. And you don't know my brother-in-law, but he's quite a lad's lad kind of macho male no-nonsense kind of guy uh, but he would come in every morning at 10 o'clock and sit at the kitchen table and have his breakfast they call it so the guys would all be sat there i'd be tidying up the kitchen making them cups of tea so i would be there not sat with them but i'd be loitering at the sink and things and the conversation got onto one day his his anxiety he said that uh, he, he gets real paranoia and anxiety. And so we started to talk about it. And uh, um, he was saying 
that his anxiety is all born about through the fear of not doing a good enough job, of, of him not being good enough, of his work not being good enough, of him being judged. Uh, it, these are his words, that he's terrified that a customer would think he's too slow, or too this, or too that, or not this, or not that. It, for him, he has terrible anxiety, so much so that he goes abroad for a good few months a year just because he gets so psyched out really really anxious um, and my sister who's married to him they, they have real trouble because it, it gets to the point where he can barely cope so they go away he distresses in a little camper van he distresses and then they come back and he does one major project he can handle that now and then they go away again because they don't have children or anything so they have a lifestyle that can enable this luckily um, but he and I were talking about so his fears and his thoughts are all about what if, what if I mess this up, what if they think this, etc. So again, it's very mentally associated and driven and uh, involved, but he got the very real physical symptoms too, the real anxiety. Um, and it's affecting him, it affects him all the time. It affects what jobs he does take on, it affects their lifestyle and so on and and I shared what I suffer you know the same symptoms the same the same um, horribleness the same experiences but that mine are rooted in different causes and different thoughts and different fears but still manifest themselves in the same way um, but it was a huge turning point for me because I was actually talking about it to somebody that was taking me seriously that empathized and understood and related to it and wasn't although Neil's approach my husband's approach of no nonsense does help to a certain extent when I'm in a panic situation when I'm having a bit of a panic attack and I can't breathe his no nonsense does help that but my brother-in-law's understanding and it normalized it I'm normal I'm okay I'm not going mad um, other people suffer this too um, other people suffer it and they don't judge me and think I'm stupid or a nutter or anything like that it was so helpful such a turning point and then I began to admit to it to myself to the children so I would say don't don't do that that you know that frightens me because my oldest son, the one who went through surgery, is a great winder-upper, loves a practical joke, and would pretend to be ill. And I've said to him many times, please don't do that, because you know I suffer anxiety. Please don't. Um, so I could admit it um, to myself and to others. I spoke with a couple of friends, one in particular. She also gets the, where well, she's, uh, one of the experiences that I get, Sometimes as I'm just drifting off to sleep, he suddenly gasps, a huge gasp. I don't know whether it's as if I haven't been breathing or it's terrifying. I sit bolt up like my heart's racing, can't, can't breathe, gasp, terrifying. She had also had this and she suffers a little bit from anxiety and she's also going through the menopause. Now I don't know which is the cause, but just the fact that we could both say, I get that sometimes 
made us feel so less alone at night. At 4 a.m. you always think you're the only person awake and the only one going through this. And I, more and more as I talk to people, I realise that is so far from the truth. So the reason I'm doing this podcast is to say, if this is you, if you are suffering like this, you are not alone, I promise you. Uh, it's bizarre. When you're a coach, um, often um, you get a, a, f- a kind of sea of clients that are quite similar and they are, it, I don't know what it is. So almost as I admitted it, I then began to get clients going through similar things. Um, so, or maybe I had already, but I had not really hooked into it. Anyway, you are not alone, first, reassurance. Second, um, for me, the turning point was admitting it to myself and to others and accepting myself. This is what I'm suffering and this is why, and then trying to do things about it. So first, I knew that my mind was very associated and very involved and that if I could keep my mind in check and be strong in my mind, as you know from many other previous episodes, you know I believe, firmly believe that the mind and the body are very, very connected. They are one and one influences the other. And if you think confident thoughts, for example, and say confident things, you'll feel confident physically. I know all of that. And so I applied all of that strategy to my anxiety. If I think strong thoughts, reassuring thoughts, or not entertain it and distract with more positive thinking about other things, other topics, talk to my mum, be grateful, etc., then that would help. And it absolutely did and still does. If I have times like this, then I know what to do. That's my strategy, is to be strong in my mind and be in control in my mind and know that it is just a panic attack. It's not who I am. It doesn't mean I'm going to die. It doesn't mean I'm going to have a heart attack. It will pass and stick with it and think of other things. And then actually those episodes and experiences diminish anyway or get less frequent anyway um so first the mind for for you if i'm not saying this as an expert i'm saying this as a a sufferer Uh, for me it was getting my mind in order and being strong in my mind distracting it or putting the tv on or reading or diverting it in my head talking to my mum or whatever works for you find what works for you second talk to somebody for me it was talking to my brother-in-law and then my friend and then admitting to the doctor I'm very anxious um, and getting some help with the HRT she did offer to give me stuff for the anxiety and said that I could have something I chose not to for a while I said let me just try and work on this myself mentally um, and I haven't felt the need to go back and get those anxiety treatment. That doesn't mean to say that perhaps um, it could help, would help. Who knows? Um, it's an option for people. It's an option still for me. Um, I chose not at that time. And I'm doing well. Um, so there is help out there. If you haven't got friends or family that understand or that relate to it and have experienced it. There are so many charities out there. Mind, M-I-N-D, is a great, great support network. There's the Samaritans out there. There's your GP out there. There are other charities out there. Um, But for me, it was finding somebody that understood 
and related to it and normalized it and didn't put it down or put me down as another or anything like that um so i think my key takeaway from today is uh that we can work on it we can help ourselves by either well everything everything that i've said every strategy throw everything at it i would also add actually that i find exercise helps me massively massively it always has mentally helped me so when i'm feeling particularly anxious i know that i need to go for a long run i know i need to burn off the adrenaline i know i need to exhaust myself i know i need to wear myself out physically um and feel good about that and enjoy it and be outside with nature um even if i haven't slept in fact particularly when i hadn't slept i knew i needed to do something i needed to move not only is it good for you health wise and fitness wise it is also good for you mentally it gives you time to just think and rhythmically get into a routine get out there get by yourself listen maybe to upbeat music or a podcast or just listen to nature but it's so de-stressing uh, you also outside and you get the vitamin d as i've mentioned previously which is a natural mood lifter and it helps with all your hormones for sleep uh, for the sleep hormones everything fresh air the whole works there's nothing that doesn't help so either a brisk long walk or a run um, i would definitely recommend so that helped me through still helps me through regularly um, still is a good tonic and a good medicine and i believe for anybody and everybody it is free it's out there um so those are all of the strategies that worked for me please 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 um talk to someone if you're going through this um and seek help don't suffer in silence i know how horrible it is it's awful it's the worst things um really that we can go through that is possible to be helped really because there, there is a lot that you could do for it and we don't need to suffer with it um, by ourselves there are friends out there who i'm certain once you start to talk a little bit you will realize they too are suffering um, and uh, the phrase i want to end on really i heard this uh, a few years ago actually quite a long time ago but it has stayed with me because it really really helped me and that is if you turn i into we you turn ill into well and that is so true so talk to your friends talk to somebody or a charity or a uh, professional or an expert or a coach or a counselor you know where i am if i can be of any help through coaching on this or you know many other subjects uh, the drop me in line i'm at uh my website is www.milestone-coaching.co.uk and my email address is dawn at milestone-coaching.co.uk um i want to wish you all the well uh, normally i wish you a strong strong confident week but this one i want to uh, wish you a healthy mentally healthy week um, free of all those anxieties um, and encourage you to talk to people turn that illness into wellness go out and exercise uh, go and get some help if you can and know that you can turn this around 
I would say that I've turned mine around 90%. I get the odd moments of worry. I, uh, I'm a little bit of a worrier at times, but only now I justify that by saying, but I know what can happen. Um, whereas before all of this, I was perhaps naive and deluded as most of us are, and thank the Lord. Um, and that's a much better place to be in, uh, that it won't happen to me and it, it, you know, all of those sorts of beliefs. So um, I have got to go now and clean my dog because I've seen her while we've been speaking. I have watched her rolling in fox poo. And if any of you have got a dog, that is horrible. So the hose pipe is about to come out. Um, contact me through the website if there is any subject you would like me to cover or if you want any kind of coaching service. Geography is not a barrier. I do FaceTime coaching and phone coaching even for those of you in the States that I know are listening and in Australia and I've got followers there. Uh, it is possible. Um, many, many things on the website, many training courses that I run um, and workshops and different trainings for, for all sorts, teenagers up on many different subjects so check it out uh subscribe so that this comes to your inbox once a week automatically and if you get a chance and you wouldn't mind putting a rate and review that'd be excellent because that helps other people find this podcast like you who may find it particularly helpful so all the very best to you and i'll talk to you on the next episode